0: Welcome to the Quest Series. This is the young mini-series within it. First of all, an announcement. The live lecture Quest Series, which takes place in meetings on the last Saturdays of the month, throughout the academic year, will start again on September 29th, 2019. Our programme is available not just as live lectures, but also has participation via the internet, since the preparatory materials are sent in advance and audio downloads are sent after the meetings. Contact details available on my website. The syllabus is available in the Quest section. This podcast concentrates on Young's relationship to Gnosticism. At a later stage, we shall explore Gnosticism itself in more detail, but just a few words on the history of this religion and its relationship to Christianity to begin with. In the first century and a half of the Common Era, that is AD, after Christ, There are the first mentions of Gnosticism, which was one of the many movements of this time. It was mainly a Near Eastern phenomena, stretching from the shores of the Mediterranean in Syria, Judea, and Alexandria in Egypt, to Persia in the East. Strangely enough, it was out of the cauldron of Near Eastern religions that the religious destiny of Europe was to be determined. For Christianity grew within the Roman Empire, despite persecution. Yet it was a political decision that was decisive in this drama, for it was in a collapsing Imperium Romanum of the 4th century that the Emperor Constantine conceived the most extraordinary relocation decision in history. On the one hand, he relocated the capital of the empire from Rome to Constantinople. On the other, he relocated power in Europe, by creating a state religion, Christianity, which had previously been a detested cult. Christianity was chosen not only because Constantine's mother was Christian, but because of its hierarchical structure, tight control over the laity, strict ethical norms, and, speaking frankly, its tendency towards totalitarianism. It was an extraordinary double bet by Constantine in the extreme danger facing the empire from the invading tribes in northern Europe. And it worked. Byzantium, as it used to be called before it was renamed into Constantinople, lasted another thousand years, while the Catholic Church took on the phenomenal task of converting the barbarian hordes that invaded the empire to Christianity. Gnosticism was for a period within the Christian movement There are those who believe, and I am among them, that Christ was a Gnostic. I certainly make far more sense of his sayings and his life when I consider he was possessed by a Gnostic myth, the messenger who comes from the unknown father in the Pleroma, who awakens the light inside us as sons and daughters of God, who speaks not of sin but awakening of the soul. As late as the mid-2nd century, the famous Gnostic Valentinus stood for election as the Bishop of Rome, though by the end of his life he was cast out as a heretic by the increasingly Orthodox Church. This was the high point of Gnosticism in the Christian Church, whose mood had turned from suspicion to anger to firm rejection, and later, when it had power, to persecution. Gnosticism emphasised individual illumination. Its Gospels and ever new teachings and revelations seemed unending. It could not be pinned down, at one moment adopting a libertine position, since the knowing one, or Gnostic, was outside of the law, and the next moment preaching an ascetic position. Gnosticism was, to say the least, highly enigmatic. Now, it was not as if the Catholic Church did not have its own extraordinary mysteries and phantasmagoria. The incarnation, the virgin birth, miracles in profusion, a resurrected Christ for which there is no independent evidence, a heaven after this life, and so forth. But within this, it was increasingly consistent that the way to heaven was through Christ and the sacraments. Belief in the authority of the Church was central, as was penitence for sin. Even if you had not personally committed one, which was very difficult given the definition of sin, you were guilty as charged anyway, since the whole of humanity inherited the original sin of Adam and Eve. By 180 years of the common era, Irenaeus, Bishop of Lyon, which was a thriving centre in southern France, in Gaul of that time, was attacking the Gnostics as heretics, And this continued in the fourth century through Augustine, who had been a Gnostic in his youth. But by then, the church had political and police power and used it to spiritually cleanse, so to speak, the Gnostic movement. Even in the Middle Ages, we can see the hatred of the church for Gnosticism, its old rival, when it ethnically cleansed the Cathars in southwestern France, who were under the influence of a Gnostic teacher who existed. A thousand years before them, Mani, hence the so-called Manichean doctrine, detested by the Catholic Church, since it held there was a dualism, both good and evil, in God. Gnosticism, as a Christian tradition, was largely eradicated by the end of the 4th century. Its teachers persecuted and its gospels burnt. A few codices, bound volumes, managed to survive in remote locations, but they were practically undecipherable. All that apparently remained were fragments preserved in the church's own writings, the heresiologists, such as those of Hippolytus, Oregon and irenaeus which condemned the Gnostics as wild, absurd, bizarre, heretical, and to be shunned by an evolving orthodox Christianity. Hardly the chance of a fair reading for those who later in history wished to find out more about their extraordinary teachings. The great absence of Gnostic material lasted up to the end of World War II, 1945, when a tremendous find of Gnostic material was made by chance in the Egyptian desert at Nag Hammadi. A large buried cache of numerous lost Gnostic Gospels, which threw light on their traditions, and the nature of their thinking and language. For, as the Catholic Church had been unified by Constantine in the 4th century, certain Gospels were chosen and others not. It was mostly the Gnostics that were excluded, and among the supposedly Christian, only those that told a certain story, namely the Resurrection, were included, and these were written towards the end of the 1st century AD, and very likely none of them by one of the original apostles. Young of course was alive in 1945 when the Nag Hammadi discovery happened and indeed a whole codex was purchased by the Philemon Foundation and actually presented to Young in 1953. But this was almost a decade later. It took many more decades for proper translations to be done. The work was very slow. Consequently, the real treasures of Nag Hammadi were not available to Jung, and certainly no hint of them, when he began his researches on this topic towards the start of the 20th century. So when did his researches exactly start, and when did his Gnostic experiences begin? For such is what we shall call his descent into the unconscious. The first record we have of his encounter with the Gnostic material was in 1910, when he came across a book by Frederick Kreutzer called Symbols and Myths. He comments, That fired me. I read like mad and worked with feverish interest through a mountain of mythological material and then through the Gnostic writers and ended in total confusion. Incidentally, for those of you who read the Gnostic text now available on the internet, I expect you will recognise the emotions Jung went through. Although, of course, Jung was not reading the original texts. The Gnostic Gospels are designed to deconstruct your consciousness. Yet, even in confusion, you can feel a deep truth in their powerful and disturbing words that have crossed generations and languages to arrive at our ears. For example, I am the first and the last. I am the honoured and the scorned one. I am the whore and the holy one. I am the wife And the Virgin, I am the barren one, and many are my sons. Although confused, Jung had caught the Gnostic spirit. It has a very powerful truth and paradoxical eloquence to it, the language of the deep psyche. And it is the Gnostic language and spirit that inhabits Leber Novus, that precious book that Jung poured his experiences of his descent into. We know, according to Lance Owens, who has written and spoken extensively and authoritatively on this subject of Jung and Gnosticism, that Jung studied the limited Gnostic material available primarily through select books. One called Gnostic Documents by Schulz was by far the most marked text in his library. This was in German, but the most complete book he could find on the subject was in English, by J.S. Mead, Fragments of a Faith Forgotten. However, these were like looking through a glass darkly, for Schultz and Mead were mostly using the heresiologists for their sources on Gnosticism. So Jung was looking through two prisms, the commentators that had just preceded him, Schultz and Mead, and secondly, their use of the church fathers, who were reporting on Gnosticism. Young, however, continued to study the Gnostics, And during the 1913 to 1917 descent, otherwise called confrontation with the unconscious, he was to use the Gnostic vocabulary and understanding to help him in his descent and slowly give form to his experiences. Although he was initially confused on his own admission, the Gnostic spirit was to inhabit him and the Gnostic voice to become his. Indeed, his main guru throughout the whole early period was his spirit guide, Philemon, who, with his enigmatic and paradoxical sayings, became a source of authority with Jung. Lance Owens points out that at the end of Liber Novis, it is revealed that Philemon is really Simon Margus, who is the arch-gnostic himself. All Gnostics incorporated into their cosmogony, that is, their theory of the origins of the cosmos, myth of Sophia, of which there are many variations. Essentially, in the Gnostic creation myth, Sophia, or wisdom, leaves the Pleroma, or somewhere near it, seeking her consort, her lover, and is forced into matter, which she cannot leave as she becomes enamoured and enmeshed with it. She is the fallen one, lost inside the world, awaiting redemption. Hippolytus, another church father, who extensively quoted the Gnostics and who was read by Young, reported that Simon Margus preached of a great and boundless power that had been hidden and concealed, yet placed within mankind. He called this power the universal root. The inner aspect of this is hidden, but is the source of its outward manifestation. The inner root needs to be accessed by art and imagining. Again, thanks to Lance Owens for this information. One can see now more clearly the roots of Young's fascination with the imaging of archetypes. There are many stories of Simon Margus, but the one he is most famous for is that he finds a prostitute in a brothel in Tyre and recognises her as the fallen Sophia. He puts her on his horse and cart, and then he travels Judea and Syria in a dramatic roadshow declaring himself as the Redeemer and her as the Sophia, straight out of the Gnostic myths. It would cause quite a stir in any age, and would make a great film in our own. The fallen feminine principle that requires integration into the human psyche becomes a central component of Jungian psychology, and indeed metapsychology. For in the centuries since Jung began writing on this subject, the re-evaluation of the importance of the feminine principle has gained importance. Pistis Sophia is a Gnostic text, discovered actually in 1773, probably dating from the late Gnostic period, around the 3rd-4th centuries AD. The existing manuscript relates one Gnostic group's teaching of the transfigured Christ to the assembled disciples, including his mother Mary, Mary Magdalene and Martha. Much of it outlines the myth of the fall and restoration of the figure known as Pistis Sophia. Sophia means wisdom in Greek and Pistis means faith. Although in many Gnostic texts and systems Sophia is a major female divinity, in Pistis Sophia she originates and dwells slightly outside of the divine realm. Her fall and redemption parallel that found in versions of the Sophia myth, such as in the Apocryphon of John, another Gnostic text. But the action all takes place in the material aeons, that is, the material realms, and she can only be restored to her place in the 13th aeon, outside the Kingdom of Light. With respect to the use of spirit guides in past ages, these have been very common. They have been much used in Christianity, for example, whereby certain saints are prayed to, or guidance is sought from the Virgin Mary, or individuals have guardian angels to guide them. In the spiritual traditions, the appearance of spirit guides are common, especially when there is ongoing revelation to be assimilated and learnt. These guides are not chosen consciously by the subject, but are rather given. Having a muse to write a book, or poetry, or compose music is a similar process, except the spirit guide emerges from the deep psyche. Besides Simon Margus, who took the name Philemon for Young, there was also another guide who made a brief appearance in the confrontation with the unconscious. The seven sermons to the dead, written by Jung at this time of the confrontation with the unconscious, and incorporated into Libanovis, were given the authorship of Basilides, a Gnostic guru and writer of Alexandria in the early 2nd century of the Common Era. The sermons were attributed to Jung's dialogues with Philemon. Jung came to believe that he had a responsibility to give knowledge not only to the living but to the dead. At one point spirits came to his house declaiming that they had come from Jerusalem where they found not what they sought. One might interpret this in the light of Young's growing Gnostic vision, that the Christian myth could no longer satisfy the psyche, be it for the living or the dead, and that he felt compelled to answer this call, that is, to provide an answer to the dead, who had gone to the origins of Christianity in search of something. Well, that was what Young did. He went to the origins of Christianity seeking an answer to his alienation and his lost soul. At first he found it not, but by entering the realm of the dead, the deep psyche, he was to discover his guides, and to his astonishment they were Gnostics. The church fathers, Hippolytus and irenaeus who wrote extensively on the Gnostics, say that Basilides was a pantheistic, dualist, emanationist. With respect to emanationism, a common theory in Gnosticism, we find such a cosmogony popular in Syria and Judea, especially with the Valentinians, whereby creation proceeded as emanations from an original uncreated Pleroma, which is beyond all human conception, but in its emanations becomes increasingly closer to the human realm. Each emanation is further from the Pleroma until in its outer circle it becomes capable of detaching and entering matter, rather like the Big Bang theory actually in modern science. From a beginning in unimaginable light and energy, where the space-time continuum does not exist, the universe comes into existence in stages as it evolves towards the material realm and eventually that of life and even consciousness, as Teilhard de Chardin beautifully describes in The Phenomena of Man. Like many Gnostics, Basilides believed that the material of the universe is evil and that the god of the Old Testament, who was responsible for the creation of this cosmos, is a lower deity or archon. Thus, Basilides, like many Gnostics, had a radical dualism between the perfect world of the Pleroma and the material universe, including the stars and cosmos, which was evil, a type of prison and created by an archon who is not conscious of his lower position. Lance Owens informs us that, in Liber Novus, Young's name for the god of this cosmos is Abraxas, and Young is warned by Sophia not to fall into his power, that although Abraxas was her child, they are now opposed. She advises Jung to be mindful of the higher god. Now, in case any of you are getting lost in mythology, a quick psychological translation may be useful. Remember that, from the point of view of archetypal psychology, all mythological events are stories, by consciousness, about itself. So, although Abraxas dominates this cosmos, i.e. patriarchal consciousness dominates this civilization, he descends from Sophia, who he is estranged from, which is to say that patriarchal civilization derives, but is estranged from the Great Mother, matriarchal consciousness. Beyond these, there is the unknown and truly loving divinity. That is, there is a transcendent, illumined consciousness possible in the seeker after Gnosis. Like all Gnostics, Basilides taught that salvation comes through knowledge and not faith. This esoteric Gnosis was a revelation to human beings by the divine being Jesus Christ. Basilides had a Gnostic belief in Jesus Christ. But faith had no part in salvation for him. This was Jung's conviction also. Inner knowledge based on experience is the spiritual path. Seekers after gnosis have to experience the living force, the mystical experience, and then they become as gods themselves. One of the treasures of the Nag Hammadi finds is the Gospel of Thomas, where it is written that Jesus said, I am not your master. Because you have drunk, you have become intoxicated from the bubbling stream that I have measured out. Basilides, like the Hindus, believed that sin in a previous existence had the consequence of a penalty in this life. He taught the transmigration of souls and said, I lived without a law once, claiming that in a previous life he existed as a beast. Oregon complained that Basilides deprived men of fear by teaching that transmigrations are the only punishments after death. Basilides, following the Pythagoreans, recommended silence of five years to his disciples, and it is said that he invented prophets that had no existence except in his philosophy. I'm sure Jung saw no problem with that. However, the material that Jung at that time had available was not sufficient for his wider aim of anchoring analytical psychology in an historical tradition. Such a concern would not exist for normal scientific endeavour, such as psychoanalysis, which consciously breaks from the superstitions and limitations of the past. If his psychology really had archetypal roots, then it should be evident in the world's spiritual traditions. Jung felt that, without mythological continuity... He and humanity were like a ship drifting on a vast ocean. He felt enormously motivated to find an historical continuity for what he was experiencing in his descent, for the psychology he was creating, and for the answer to the personal and civilizational malaise he perceived so intensely. He engaged in an intense study of Gnosticism between 1918 and 1926. Although fascinating and leading him to his descent, It could not provide the template for the integration process, that is, piecing it all together with his evolving school of psychology. He was fascinated, but looking through a glass darkly. The material was too fragmentary. There was not enough psyche in it, and there was so much, as he called it, speculative and synthesising recensions. Recensions are revisions. Speculative and synthesising simply meant that there were new combinations, syntheses, and much speculation. That is, there was no central authoritative text. Jung complained that only pieces had survived, and that through the heresiologists, quote, a strange and confused literature which is so difficult to evaluate, unquote. He wrote of a vast distance of time between them and us. And connections were subsidiary and left gaps at the most important moment. In short, while the Gnostic material and inspiration were enough to provide the language and form of his descent, it was not enough to provide the historical template and analogy to his analytical psychology. As we saw in the last podcast on alchemy, the secret of the golden flower, by contrast, was complete, uncensored and had remarkable connections to analytical psychology. Jung being enthused, for example, by the connections in the text to his work on mandalas and the circumlazio, or the comparison between the diamond body and the self, or the union of the male and the female, and the creation of the mystical child. At last he had his, Archimedean point, from which our Western attitude of mind could be lifted off its foundations. Nevertheless, he did not abandon Gnosticism, but saw it as flowing into the alchemical retort, being transformed and contributing to the gold thereby produced. Although alchemy was extremely ambiguous and almost undecipherable, Jung felt impelled to decode its mysteries, and in doing so felt a deep connection between alchemy and Gnosticism. That is, an unbroken chain going back 2,000 years. He writes in Memories, Dreams, and Reflections When I began to understand alchemy, I realised that it represented the historical link with Gnosticism, and that a continuity therefore existed between past and present. Grounded in the natural philosophy of the Middle Ages, alchemy formed the bridge on the one hand into the past, to Gnosticism, and on the other into the future to the modern psychology of the unconscious. The possibility of a comparison with alchemy and the uninterrupted intellectual chain back to Gnosticism gave substance to my psychology. In our next podcast, I shall take a number of central principles of Gnosticism, and I hope to show how the ideas of an unknown God, the uncreated self, a dualism seeking oneness through mankind the belief that this world is a creation of a lesser god, and so on, are all embodied in Jungian psychology, which is dreaming the Gnostic myth onwards into modern humanity. I shall also argue in later episodes that radical Manichaeism, which is a branch of Gnosticism, is implied in Freudian, specifically Kleinian psychoanalysis. Also, that Gnosticism has entered deeply into the philosophy and psychology of nihilism and existentialism in the 20th century. I hope you can join me for these.